Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Pillar Church of Oceanside. You're welcome. My name is Trace. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am glad that you're here with us. I'm encouraged by um, always gathering together with the, the body of Christ, and man, this is where we belong, you know, in the beautiful California sun, soaking in that sunshine, and we are blessed, we are fortunate to be where we are and doing what we're doing. So if you um, were not with us last week, that's okay, because I'm going to try to catch you up, but we, we started a series a couple of weeks ago. Um, trying to figure out where God is leading us as a church and how we can be sensitive as the pastors and the leaders to say, okay, God, what is it that you want your church to be about right now? And so we started this called Firm Foundations, and over the last couple of weeks, that's kind of uh, expanded. You know, we, we, we thought, that's a cool name. We want to talk about the basics of being a Christian, and it's really started to expand um, especially over the last couple days, actually. So last week was part one of a sermon titled, What is the Gospel? And we wanted to boil things down as simply as we can. If we are going to be ambassadors for Christ, part of that is is having a fluency of that gospel message that we're called to proclaim. And so we wanted to kind of break it down. And let me just kind of see where we are um, Anybody can give me the four words. We said there's basically four words that we can use as a framework to help us work through the gospel. So four words. The first one was God, man, Christ, response. Okay, so we're, we're pretty good. And some of you are just like, you know, watermelon, watermelon, watermelon. They say to do that when you're on stage singing. You don't know the words because it looks like, at least that's what my wife told me, in high school choir. It, it doesn't really matter. You know that there are four words, and again, these are our framework: God, man, Christ, response. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna do a bit of a review, uh, just like last week. I gave us a preview of this week because anytime that we talk about this gospel message, we have to have the complete and full gospel message. Otherwise, we we could be um, in trouble. So we talked about God as um, righteous and just Creator. God is the righteous and just creator. And, and we read in the, in the Psalms that those two words, righteous and just, are actually the foundation of God's throne. Like for something to be the foundation, it's pretty, pretty important, right? The foundations of God's throne are righteousness and justice. So what does the word righteous mean? Well, it means that God's character always leads him to do what is right. Just in who he is, his character always leads him to do what is right, which actually goes hand in hand with being just. And we talked about the fact that just in that God will hold people accountable for their disobedience. That's what we mean by that. He's not going to, as we said, sweep our sin under the rug, so to speak, and just kind of, you know, pat us on the back. It's like, all right, nice try. You know, you messed up a little bit, but come on in. You weren't that bad. Because, why? It's not in his nature to do such a thing. Justice is the foundation of his throne. He can't and won't do that. And it also means, though, that he's not going to pick and choose who he holds accountable and who he's going to let off the hook. And I think all of us can agree that nobody wants to serve a God that is inconsistent or just picks and chooses who he's going to hold to account and who he's not. That's not the way that it works. But he's also creator. 
And the moment that we admit and, and acknowledge God as creator, we have to admit and acknowledge that as the creator, he has the right and the authority to what? Tell his creation how to live. He does that, and we don't like it. We don't like it at all. We don't want God to tell us how to live our lives. Like, leave me alone. I'm good. I, I got this thing figured out. Not a problem. And so we choose to live our lives a certain way, and in that we rebel against our creator. We actually become his enemy in that way, living by our own standard. Problem is, we're not going to be held to our standard, are we? We're not even going to be held to the world's standard, right? Whose standard are we going to be held to at the end of the day? God's standard. That's it. Whether you believe in that standard, acknowledge that standard, or not, it's going to happen that way. And, and here's the deal, church. We've missed the mark. We've missed the mark in a bad, bad way. And this creates a big problem for us, doesn't it? A big, big problem, which is the second topic we discussed last week, and that is us. Man, humanity, creation, us. And we said more than just man, we said man, the perpetual sinner. And I want to just acknowledge and sort of thank you, commend you for sitting through what was a fairly difficult portion of the scripture last week. You kind of worked with me on that. Because uh, it's challenging when we talk about the depth of our sin. I had a good conversation with Mike this week, and we kind of talked about the balance of of, of acknowledging our sinful nature and also acknowledging that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. So let me just say, uh, let me camp on this for a minute because it's important. I said last week that we're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. That's an important distinction, right? Because we're easy, it's easy to let ourselves off the hook if we say, oh, you know, we're not so bad. But down to the core of who we are, sin is there. It runs to the core of, of us. And, and we're not generally good people with a couple of you know, mistakes here and there. That's every one of us. Before putting our faith in Jesus, we openly rebel against God, choose our way over his every single time, deny his existence, and we are enemy by nature. Our sin, that is our disobedience, then brings judgment against us because we broke the law. And just like in this world, you break the law, you're going to pay the price. You're going to pay the penalty. You're going to be held to an account. And that's the problem that we have. But then again, in my conversation with Mike, we've got to pit this against the idea that as Christians now, we're talking about Christians, we are new creations in Christ Jesus. Amen? The old has passed away. Behold, the new is come. So there's like this tension that exists. And here's what I think it boils down to. And that is that, as Paul says, we are no longer slaves to sin. We're not under its control in that regard. But we are still sinful. That nature does still exist. And we can all attest to that. At some time in the last 24 minutes, I was going to say 24 hours, that sin nature came out in some way. Yes? <laughs> Thank you for that rousing amen. But by God's grace, we are maturing. We're growing to become less like our old sin-obsessed selves and more like Jesus. Now, do we still fall short and mess up every single day? Yes. But grace is more. Where sin runs deep, grace is more. And that's what we as Christians need to understand. That's where that tension is. We are forgiven. We are redeemed. We are out from under the curse of sin. And so speaking of grace, that's a perfect transition into what is going to be the next part of our gospel framework, Christ. 
Uh, but before I dig in that, let me just pray, ask for the Lord's help, and then we'll, we'll tackle this. Lord, we just thank you for another day of life. God, we thank you for this gospel truth that we are studying, and that it's not just, just words, Lord God, written on a page. It's not just uh, a good doctrine, Lord God. It is life. It is truth. It is hope. It is redemption. It is eternity with you. Everything hangs in the balance in our understanding of the gospel message, our acceptance of it, and our walking in its truth. So I pray that you'd help us to internalize this, Lord God, not just to, to be able to, to rattle it back off, um, but Lord, to let it shape us in everything that we do, Lord. Let everything we do be as unto you, pleasing to you, Father. So help us now as we look to this these next two items, Lord God, these next two categories of the, the, the gospel. And give us focus and retention and a deeper understanding and appreciation of, of you, Christ, and our response to that. So help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so God, man, Christ. Christ the Savior. If you're, if you're taking notes, um, that kind of helps you get a little bit more of a concept of what we're going with this. And I think I think every Christian, and probably most non-Christians, can answer correctly when asked, what did Jesus do for you? I think most people will be able to say that what? Christ, he died for me, right? Or maybe even he died for our sins, which is 100% true. Absolutely, 100%. But I referenced last week, Romans 5.8, as sort of my transition, like, because it was pretty heavy at the end of last week with sin running deep. Romans 5, 8. But God, right, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, so we understand that. Yes, he died for us. The question we need to answer today is how? What makes Jesus unique? And what exactly took place on the cross? Because I think a lot of Christians, while they can answer that Christ died for us, they don't know why or how it makes sense. What makes Jesus so unique? What happened on the cross? So the first thing we're going to need to understand is that God has chosen something as his means for bringing atonement. And that thing is its blood. Hebrews 9 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Pretty clear. Like, it doesn't get any clearer than that. Whatever reason God chose that, I think because blood represents life, right? You lose your blood, you're dead. <laughs> so so life, sacrifice, giving over a life has something to do with that. But we, we see clearly that without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But there's more in Hebrews 9. So if you've got your Bible, you can flip it over to Hebrews 9. <clears throat> and we are going to jump around a little bit because there are a couple of different scriptures we want to try to capitalize on. So Hebrews chapter 9 is sort of buried near, there near the end of your, your New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9, and if you're not there, that's fine. I'll just read it. We're going to start at verse 11 and read through verse 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, 
thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of devout persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, God is bigger than any man-made temple. He's bigger than any sacrifice offered by man. Why? Because his blood was perfect, sinless, or as the author of Hebrews says, without blemish. That is what makes Jesus unique. That's what qualifies him to offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Right? He lived a life free from sin, didn't he? You believe that? I hope so, because everything's riding on that. <laughs> Again, that's what makes him unique. So yes, he did. Fully man, yet fully God. However that works out. At the same time, he's then positioned to be the perfect sacrifice. So I think we understand that. That's what makes him unique. But what exactly happened that allowed for the sin to be forgiven? And I think one particular verse that helps us understand that is 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. If you don't have a verse memorized or you're like, where do I start? Like, this would be a great verse to memorize because it's kind of the gospel um, in one verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So contained in this verse are the key elements that we're talking about here that describe for us the fancy word, the efficacy of the cross, the effectiveness, the fact that it worked <laughs> is shown in this. So four things from this one verse. One is for our sake. For our sake. He did that out of his love for us and not by anything else that we did. For our sake he did that. Two, Jesus knew no sin. We already talked about that. Like He did not sin against God. That's a key factor. Three, somehow God made Jesus to be our sin. We're not going to go deep into this right here. Um, but three is that God somehow made Jesus to be our sin. There's an exchange that took place. So that four, in him we might become the righteousness of God. Those all work together. So simply put, let me tell you, because I'm a simple person, I need things simple. A great exchange took place. Also known as the substitutionary atonement. Anybody familiar with that language? Substitutionary atonement. You're like, nope, I don't know what you're talking about. That's fine. So what does it mean to be a substitute? You're taking a place. Like You're, you're standing in that person's place for them. That's exactly what Jesus did. He took our place. He died, paid the price for our disobedience, our sin. Why, though? So that we wouldn't have to pay for it ourselves. Somebody's going to pay the price. But that substitutionary aspect, that switching that happened. And he did it with his life. His perfect, sinless life. He shed his blood for you and for me. Not only that, though, there was another exchange that took place. He exchanged his perfect righteousness for our sinful unrighteousness. Right? That's what that verse says, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that we might become the righteousness of Christ. So that when 
God looks at us. He doesn't see our nasty, awful, sinfulness. He sees the righteousness of Christ because there was a great exchange that happened. And he accepts us based on that righteousness. Now, we all know that everything that we do on this earth matters, and we earn every bit of that salvation, right? Right? I just want to see you paying attention, because I saw some heads shaking like this. You're like, uh-huh, yeah. If uh, the guy in front says right, then you shake your head yes. What I said was, we all know that we earn every bit of that salvation with every act that we do on this earth, right? Thank you. Part of the verse that we, thank you, part of that verse that we opened up with, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace we have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. For by grace. So Jesus, the Savior. That's the, the third, the third piece of this. Now let's look at the fourth part, which is response. What do we do with this information? Okay, great. We, we've got all these parts. Now what? Mark 1.15 tells us exactly what. It says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Repent and believe in the gospel. Two things. So I hit on this a little bit as my preview to this week, so hopefully we'll get a little bit of exchange going on here. What does the word repent mean again? To change your mind. Change your mind. What is it then that we're changing our mind about? We got, yeah, you like rattled off. To change your mind. Yes. Okay, great. What are you changing your mind about? Your sin and and your savior, your savior who God is. The fact that you need a savior. Absolutely. Good job. Okay, we pulled it out, but we got there. So, to change our mind is that, that we see our awful sin as disobedience and rebellion against a perfect and just creator, which again, rightly demands punishment. It rightly demands. So I think it's important to acknowledge to you that these, this order of events isn't arbitrary. It's always repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Why? Because when we change our mind about our sin, we change our mind about who God is, it positions us then to see our need to believe in something that is Christ. Right? It proceeds, it positions us to believe. And I, and I believe without this change, we, we have no reason to believe in anything but ourselves. A person that's drowning doesn't ask, or doesn't know they're drowning, doesn't ask for help. They don't need to believe that that person's going to throw the life preserver because they don't think that they're drowning. You have to first understand that you are in desperate need of help. That's where the repentance comes in. It opens the door for that belief. And so I think we clearly understand that what we're believing at this point is Jesus. Everything that we just talked about is what we're believing in, specifically what he accomplished on the cross for us. But it's not enough, my friends, just to have an intellectual knowledge of this. Like, yeah, I can rattle off the gospel. I know a lot of people who aren't Christians that can tell me what the gospel is. They understand it here. But there's no change. It has not affected anything because they're not believing with the kind of belief that the Bible's talking about here. Talking about life and death. So down this road, about, I don't know, two miles, 
there's the Oceanside Municipal Airport, where if you're anywhere in the Oceanside area during the week or on the weekends, you can see little orange spots in the sky. What are those people doing? They're skydiving. They're jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. So how many of you have done this? Raise your hand real high. We want to see all the crazies are. Okay. How many of you really want to do that? Okay, a couple more. How many of you couldn't be paid enough to go do that? Okay, most of us. Good. No, not going to happen. So when you jump out of an airplane, and this is likely the reason why most of you won't do that, when you're plummeting to the ground at terminal velocity, what is the only thing that's going to get you to the ground safely? The parachute, right? And what happens if it doesn't open? Use whatever word you want, but essentially it's not going to end well for you. You're done. End of story. So let me ask you this. Would you jump out of the airplane if you were hesitant that the parachute wouldn't open? You're like, yeah, mm, I'm 75% sure that the parachute is going to open. Let's go for it. No, nobody in their right mind is going to do that. You count on that parachute to get you to the ground safely because your life depends on it. So I ask you, is that the kind of belief in Jesus that you have? Is that the kind of dependence upon Christ that if he didn't do what he said he did on the cross, I am dead? This is all for nothing if I don't believe like my life is on the line when it comes to this. This is the kind of belief that the Bible is describing for us. If Jesus didn't do what God said he did on the cross, that's it. That includes his resurrection, which is an important part of this conversation. So let me turn you to one more passage. Go over to 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For by a man, by, as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We believe this. Like our life depends on it. Because it does. So this is how we enter into a relationship with Jesus. By repenting and believing in the gospel. We, we understand that. But we also need a daily dependence on this gospel truth. So are you stepping to the door, looking out at the ground below you, and jumping out of the plane without the parachute because you've forgotten what it is that gets you to the ground safely? That's the only reason you would do that. 
you've lost sight of who Christ is and what he's doing. You're like, you know what? Today I'm good. I'm going to jump out this door and I'm going to get myself to the ground safely because I can do that. When we are walking apart from Christ, when we are not depending on him every day, that's essentially what we're saying that we're doing. Now, granted, we know that our eternity is, is secure in Christ. And if we just live you know, for ourselves for a season, it's not like we're being pulled out of that relationship with him. We're not losing our salvation. That's not what I'm saying. But what we do is we put ourselves at tremendous risk to be swept away by the enemy because we're depending upon ourselves. So we have God, the righteous and just creator. We have man, the perpetual sinner, Christ, the savior, and our response of repentance and belief. Let me close with this. Why is it important for us to have command over this information? Anybody know how many people live in San Diego County? Three and a half million people. Three and a half million people in San Diego County. The numbers tell us that 90% of San Diego County is unchurched or unreached with the gospel message. 90%. So of the 200,000 people plus or minus that live here in Oceanside, 9 out of 10 are without a relationship with Jesus. That means that on your block of 10 houses or in your barracks of 10 rooms, you are the only Christian household. You ever think about it in those terms? On your block, you are the only Christian household. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, did he not? Did you know he also said that he wishes that none would perish? He also said to the Apostle Paul that faith comes by what? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word of God, he says, how are they going to hear if nobody tells them? What does he say next? How is somebody going to tell them if nobody sends them? And then for us now is how can we send them if they're not equipped? And I think that's where a lot of churches fall short. We preach the Great Commission and we give little or no instruction on how to be Great Commission Christians. So here's what I'm thinking, church. I'm thinking that God is hes shaking up his church in this coronavirus age, I believe, to expose this truth. You know, so many Christians are concerned, especially right now, where are we going to meet, how are we going to meet, when are we going to meet, how are other churches meeting, or how aren't they meeting? Why? Because gathering together as the church is the pinnacle of many believers' lives. Their relationship and their faith begins and ends at the door of the church. So look, I'm not in any way discouraging or discounting gathered church. We Don't hear me say that. We must gather as the church. We are commanded to do that, and we will do that. We'll come together every week. We'll worship. We'll heal the word of God preached. We'll take communion together. We'll employ our spiritual gifts. These things are vital to our faith journey. But what else is happening as a result of us gathering together? God keeps asking me the question, why are you here? And I keep asking you the question, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, why are you here? What do you hope to gain by being here? And the theme is not going away, church. It's actually amplifying in my heart and in my spirit. So I'm going to keep asking it. Why are we gathering? And let me ask you this. Does it really matter where or when we meet? It all depends on the why. If we're coming together for ourselves, then it matters a lot where we meet and when we meet. 
It's more about being equipped to then turn around and go back out into the mission field. It matters a lot less where and when we meet. So think about that. Our city is saturated in lostness. It is our job to reach the lost, to push back darkness. And now we have the most important piece of this puzzle, the gospel message, under our belt. So now what? What do we do now? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked. I'm almost done, I promise. This is not an overnight change, and this is part of what our conversation as elders has been. Yes, God is shaking up his church to see the reality of the situation, to evaluate why we do what we do as the church and as Christians in this world right now, and then decide whether we're going to change or stay the same. So that's where our series is headed next. We talked about firm foundations, but we're going to start tackling categories that address the idea of living as Christians beyond the door of the church. What does it look like for you to be a Christian in your home, in your community, in your workplace, in the church, so that the gospel influences your action, your decisions, your attitudes, your priorities in all of these ways? That's where we're going with this, and I'm really excited about that because this is what we need, church. We need to be equipped to be Great Commission Christians in every one of those places. And if we're not teaching you how to do that, then nobody is. It's our job to do that. We want to come alongside you and do that together and do it well. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your incredible grace and mercy to us. God, help us to, 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 be, to desire to be Great Commission Christians. Lord, we, we have the gospel message. We have a better understanding of it. And continue to help it to shape us every day, every moment. God, grant us strength and courage and desire to change. God, to want to grow, to want to mature, to want to understand what it is that you want of us, your church, in this season. God, help us as leaders to be sensitive to your spirit. Help us as the body of Christ to, to rally around what it is that you're doing for us to go forward, proclaim the truth, and see men and women set free in this community, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our workplaces. God, use us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.